<laughs> Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Con327. Um, it's uh, over subscription at scale, running tons of containers with Kubernetes. So my name is uh, Pradimna Das. I'm a solutions architect based out of London, uh, and my uh, focus area is on containers and especially Kubernetes. So I'm with Ed and Damien, who are from GoDaddy, and talk about how they have built something on top of Kubernetes and using Amazon EKS. Before I hand over uh, to Ed and Dam uh, Damien, um, may I know how many of you are using EKS? Show of hands, please. Okay, quite a good number. So, okay, that's. I think uh, this is the right session. Um, so, I will give it to Damien, maybe. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. start us off. Oh, no, okay. you, that, you take that. <laughs> you take that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Pradi. Um, okay, cool. Hey guys, um, I'm Damien. I'm a senior software engineer at GoDaddy. And uh, my coworkers call me Damien S17F because they can't pronounce my name. My last name is Silbergleith Kniff, and there will be bonus points at the end if you can do better than they can. And I'm Ed Abrams. I'm a senior director of software at GoDaddy. Nobody calls me Ed8A4S, and uh, my name is really easy to pronounce. You, you gave me that name. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, we're here today to tell you the story of how GoDaddy is using AWS and Amazon EKS to achieve oversubscription at scale, and delight our customers, and drive operational efficiencies for our team. Let's talk about today's big focus points. The key takeaways we'd like you to leave this session with are first, that by making use of AWS for infrastructure and pushing the responsibility for managing that infrastructure to a trusted partner, we can focus all of our engineering efforts and rigor on our products. We follow that with heavy use of automation and in order to successfully manage a massive fleet of infrastructure. We also need to achieve this while maintaining strong operational efficiencies and making the most of every resource we have. This allows us to achieve cost savings that we pass along to our customers. And finally, we developed Somnus, a service idler, and it allows us to run very large Kubernetes clusters with oversubscription at scale oversubscribing core resources and allowing us to achieve efficiency at that scale. So a long time ago, in a server room far, far away, traditional hosting environments implemented the notion of oversubscription. It's a really simple concept. The idea is you have a server with some limited amount of compute, RAM, and storage, and you take your users and you assign them to those servers with a promised service level that sums to more than the total amount of resources that are available on that given machine. Well, how is this possible? Simply because for any group of customers, the average resource utilization ends up being typically less than 100%. The risk, of course, is that in some cases, you could have a noisy neighbor, uh, a server mate who consumes more than his fair share of the resources and steals those resources from the other people on his server. This is kind of like having a pizza party, right? You know you gotta buy pizza for everybody, so you, you don't have to buy two slices for everyone, because you know some people are gonna eat one, and some other people are gonna eat three, but it's only really a problem when Larry eats an entire pie by himself. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, really. Um, our goal, in short, has been to focus on doing this on Kubernetes, because in a, a traditional setting, you don't have any mechanism for constraining those users to only the resources that you've promised them. In Kubernetes, you have inherent per-pod resource constraints and isolation, and we wanted to leverage that for our oversubscription model. Oversubscription at scale is our approach to reducing the cost of the services that we provide to our users on Kubernetes. By reducing these costs, 
While maintaining a high level of performance and reliability, we can offer a premium experience to our customers while at the same time driving operational efficiencies for our team. Today we're going to tell you about how this model of oversubscription at scale on Kubernetes works and how we drive it onto clusters of up to and beyond a thousand nodes to benefit our customers and drive operational efficiency for our engineering teams. But before we dive into the details, we want to give you a little bit of context about our, com our company and customers. GoDaddy powers the world's largest cloud platform dedicated to small, everyday entrepreneurs. We have 19 million customers worldwide with more than 77 million domain names under management, and we handle over 300,000 DNS queries per second. Over the last 20 years, GoDaddy's become synonymous domain with domain names, but that's really just the beginning. At GoDaddy, it's always about our customers. These are real people with powerful entrepreneurial spirits distributed all over the globe who want to focus on developing their next great idea. To do this, they need digital presence solutions, and that's where we come in. We offer a suite of tools for them, and WordPress is one of our crown jewels. WordPress is an open source content management system that holds 50 to 60% of the CMS market and powers one third of all the websites on the planet. GoDaddy is the largest paid WordPress host with millions of WordPress sites, and we also have the largest managed WordPress platform available. This combination of software and customers creates unique scaling challenges that demand innovative solutions, and Kubernetes ends up being a great fit for this space. The project we'll be talking about today, Somnus, is the next on GoDaddy's growing list of open source projects that we have helped to serve the needs of our everyday entrepreneurs and our engineers. Recently at Reinforce, an AWS security conference, we also announced the open sourcing of ASHRA, our application encryption SDK. As a company, we've made increasing contributions to open source, striving to support several different foundations and projects whose services have made the world a better place and have allowed us to delight our customers. I won't read off all these contributions individually, but it's the power of open source that allows us to successfully drive our mission of empowering independent ventures, making them successful with digital presence products that let them tell their stories and manage their work. The team Eddie and I are on is called Prime, and we wanted to introduce you to one special member of our team, the guy with the big bobblehead. His name's Bo, and he's the primary author of Somnus, the project we're gonna be talking about. He's with us in spirit on the slides, but he's also here with us in the audience. Bo, come on, give him a wave. Come on, there you go, uh, that's our guy. All right, that's you. Kubernetes is a wonderful infrastructure enabler. AWS and Amazon EKS make life so much easier as we fulfill our mission to delight our customers. But it's not a silver bullet. There are very real challenges that we face, and we need to be careful addressing each one. It's useful for us to define the problem space to get a sense of where we stand. In engineering, we're often more constrained by people, availability of human resources, than we are the availability of compute or storage. We know that in order to operate a solution at scale, we're going to need to be a tight, focused team empowered to manage dozens or hundreds of clusters across a multitude of regions. To do this, we're going to need infrastructure that can be expressed as code. Our operations must be fully automated, and we must be able to extend our infrastructure without manual intervention or ad hoc DevOps requirements. We want to be able to check in changes to source control have our infrastructure deployed and test them before they go in front of customers. We also want to prove that the infrastructure works before it's put in production. 
using CI-CD automation and infrastructure as code, along with custom best practices and strategies we'll tell you about today, we can demonstrate how our product will behave when it goes into production before real users are on it. We gain certainty in our reliability and can go forward with confidence. Finally, the product itself has to be efficient. If we can pack in features, trim the fat, make the most of every resource we've got, we can pass any cost savings on to our customers. This can open the door to developing products that might otherwise be priced out of what our competitors can offer and what our customers could get elsewhere. In the next two sections, we'll dive into how we achieve simple management of an efficient management of massive architecture by relying on Amazon AWS and taking a novel CI-CD and automation approach. Then we'll deep dive on Somnus and how we use service idling to manage Kubernetes resources. This will show how managing scale and managing efficiency are mutually supportive goals and help us drive a lean, mean Kubernetes machine. Partnering with AWS for our infrastructure scaling needs was one of the best decisions that we ever made. About a year ago, I had the privilege of attending a training session at Amazon's headquarters in Seattle. There were a lot of great learnings over the course of those days, but the one that stuck with me the most was that of undifferentiated heavy lift. This is a concept that you may have heard talked about in other sessions, but it's worth digging into a little bit. It just means that there are hard problems, these heavy lifts, that are common across different engineering domains. We all got to solve them. Classic examples, a database. We all need backup. We all need restore. And these are hard things to get right at scale. They take a lot of engineering effort. One of the major benefits from working with AWS is that they take care of large portions of this undifferentiated heavy lift, allowing you to focus on the core pieces of your application that serve your application's need. And it facilitates running infrastructure at scale by providing a force multiplier for your engineering efforts. We leveraged a lot of the offerings that AWS has available, but we're really gonna focus in on four of them. We'll start with CloudFormation, which lets you describe your architecture in terms of YAML files and then commit them to source control. After that, we'll look at EKS, which obviously is the managed Kubernetes solution. And then we're gonna look at two different storage options, though there are a multitude available. We'll look at EFS for our network-based file systems, and we'll look at Aurora for our relational database needs. Let's look a little deeper at each one of these and see how they provided that force multiplier for our team. CloudFormation is a really powerful tool based on a really cool idea. Declarative infrastructure as code. So your infrastructure as expressed in code looks a lot like configuration. And the configuration declares the properties of your infrastructure and in turn what that will look like when it's deployed. This differs from an imperative style where you express the commands to release that infrastructure. With CloudFormation, we're able to describe our Kubernetes clusters, our storage, and our network all as YAML files. Each of these files then can be checked into source control and deployed into production using CI-CD automation, and they give a clear statement of what the expected state of our environment will be. Moreover, the commits carry descriptions of the changes that were made and can be peer-reviewed before they're being merged. After that, our automation simply takes that stuff, moves it forward in the deployment process, and runs the changes through test environments so we can gain confidence about our production deployments. Exactly. And once you've got your templates together, it's not hard to see how you could replicate them into additional environments or regions. You simply take those templates, reference them, iterate on those templates, and off you go into production with new, new, uh, new clusters. 
Uh, this, is, this is something that would be really, really, really hard to do if you were working with uh, the web console and clicking on buttons, and it might be considerably harder if you were using an imperative style. CloudFormation is one of the fundamental building blocks in our scaling story, and using it pays dividends very, very quickly. EKS is a great fit for GoDaddy and its Kubernetes needs. By providing a managed Kubernetes solution where the control plane is handled by AWS, we're able to run a lot of clusters without a lot of engineering effort. Well, wait, hang on, hang on, Damien. You know, running Kubernetes control planes and masternodes isn't an impossible task. Uh, in fact, the first version of our product that we developed on-prem and in our own data centers was completely self-managed and we did it from scratch ourselves. All we had to do was set up enough masternodes to scale out our infrastructure and then make sure that we could implement our own auto-scaling for that masters. And then we also had to manually scale out the control plane parameters that let us serve many, many requests. Oh, and we also had to manage uh, etcd and, and upgrading right. and master nodes right. and etcd nodes yeah. and... Uh, and then, and then, and then, and then. Right, it's one thing after another. So this wasn't really all that easy. No, I guess you're right. It was pretty hard, even though it was technically possible. Right, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a heavy lift. Exactly. You're right. By running EKS for our Kubernetes control plane, we sure did save a lot of work and we could focus our efforts on the engineering work that improves the lives of our customers. Amazon's classic example of undifferentiated heavy lift is the database. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Databases and file stores, for that matter, are high-value properties with, uh, with unique customer data and configuration that you can't afford to lose. As a result, they must be backed up, highly available, and well-maintained. Doing this at enterprise scale requires teams of dedicated engineers and, uh, to ensure that all the moving parts are working as they should. Using EFS and Aurora cut our engineering needs by an order of magnitude. EFS is highly available by default, writes all data to three availability zones, and it allows you to tune the network performance model to match your customers' needs and the, um, and, and the way that the traffic actually functions. Aurora provides automated snapshot backups and read-write replicas which fail over without user intervention. We know this because we actually tested it in our failure and load tests, and it's pretty impressive when you see it happen. Once again, AWS's offerings provide fundamental building blocks that we can use to assemble these core units of infrastructure and, uh, and build a powerful collection. We ended up naming that collection of infrastructure the municipality. We like this name because, frankly, cluster and, 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 and pod, they're both totally overloaded in the Kubernetes space, but really, we like the idea of municipality because it drove the, the concept forward that these were all common, they had common building blocks underneath them, we assembled them together, but they were all slightly different from one another. There were little variances between them. The municipality provides the building block for creating this infrastructure at scale. It's not hard to see how one could mass produce these, treating them like a typical manufacturing product. We've discussed that product, now we need to discuss the assembly line, and that's where operations at scale come in. Achieving massive scale to support millions of entrepreneurs is what GoDaddy is all about. And now that you know a little bit about our customers, and a little bit about how we use AWS to help scale out our infrastructure, it's time to consider the complexity of how we manage that scale. We need solutions that will help us manage hundreds of municipalities, hundreds of these cities of infrastructure, with ease and with a small team. Our problem of scale is that of taking a relatively simple individual unit, WordPress, and instancing it out millions of times for our customers. We will describe the tools and practices that we use to do this with ease. Also intrinsic to what we do, 
as a product team is seamlessly move our customers. We need to do this so that we can guarantee that they have an upgrade to new products as we offer them. We also need to do it so that we can guarantee those customers the performance they need, migrating them from a busy server, busy cluster, to one with more resources. And finally, we need this so that we can upgrade our clusters without downtime for our users. We also need to be able to test our deployments at scale. I'm sure many of you have tried to use synthetic testing to ensure scale for your product, but I'm equally sure that many of you have had the experience of using synthetic testing and then finding some launch characteristic in production that wasn't predicted by your testing. We want to share with you some of the hard-won learnings that we, we learned in scaling out testing to get real testing at real scale automated with Kubernetes in production. Automating infrastructure and product changes is the primary strategy in managing scale. Let's take a look at the tools, processes, and practices that we use to accomplish this. Managing hundreds of clusters with hundreds and hundreds of configuration parameters is an unruly task. We needed to make sure that we could do this with a strong audit and review process and keep it all relatively simple. We knew we wanted to use source control as our change management tool, as well as a tool for making the state of the world transparently visible at any given time. It turns out there's a really powerful existing application for managing explicitly stated parameter configuration and cloud formation templates as a core catalog of infrastructure units. That tool is Scepter. It's an open source product from CloudReach, and it builds a dependency graph across your CloudFormation templates and parameters, and then deploys that into CloudFormation as individual standalone stacks. Scepter supports templates written in JSON, YAML, Jinja2, and Troposphere, a Python library for expressing uh, CloudFormation templates programmatically. It also has uh, pathing best practices that help you manage regions and environments, and it has customizable resolvers for increased flexibility in stack management and support for running arbitrary code as hooks before and after those stacks deploy. We married Scepter's flexibility and power with the idea of a custom-built container for our CI-CD phases. These CBCs, as we called them, manage the complexity that you'd normally find in the CI-CD pipeline in a, in a dedicated container itself. We do this so we can wrap exactly the tools that we need in exactly a container that does exactly what we need. It's all done independent of the environment it's running in, so there's no more concerns about the state of your Jenkins workers or whether a Circle CI build tool has the things that you need embedded into it. It has the added benefit of taking that complexity that used to exist in your configuration or your groovy code and moving it into your, your Docker file, and it lets you express this all in whatever language you want using whatever tools it is you need to use. And finally, there's one more really, really big added effect, and that is you, you break vendor lock-in, right? You can move away from being dedicated to a single CI-CD system. So let's say you wanted to do this with AWS, right? You wanted to use code pipeline. It's a really easy thing to do. You just take your CBCs, you upload them into ECR, and then you write a build YAML, hand it off to code pipeline, AWS does the heavy lifting for you. If you don't want to use AWS, you want to use CircleCI, it's basically the same thing. Find yourself a container registry, put the containers into it, write a config YAML, and off you go. And finally, if you're old school like us, you get, you get to use Jenkins, and you can express the same thing using a, a, a multi-branch pipeline configuration. You just define your stages within there, and then execute your, build con your, your containers as you need them. It's really easy to get a dedicated uh, environment without a lot of effort. 
Migrations are often an afterthought, something you worry about as you're thinking about developing product version N plus one. But with our strategy for managing massive operational complexity tackled, we could take a very forward-thinking approach to migrations. We designed and built migrations right into the fabric of the product itself. What advantages did that give us? First, we constantly are upgrading our products. In doing so, we aim to create new value for our customers every time we make a change. Sometimes these changes come with the need to reconstitute our municipalities. By thinking of migration as a normal, everyday need, similarly to how people are thinking about backup and restore these days, we allow ourselves the flexibility to take our customers to new versions whenever they want to go. At the same time, we can rebalance our clusters seamlessly by taking customers that have bigger performance needs as they grow as customers and putting them onto clusters that have greater resource availability. Finally, we can perform maintenance of entire clusters without any downtime by migrating customers off before we do so. Migrating a customer's product data seamlessly is a core capability that we're proud to offer in our offering. But finally, and perhaps most importantly, it helps us with testing, another domain that is often left as an afterthought but which for us is core to how we understand the behavior of our product. Yeah, so it's easy to leave testing to the end, right? We do this a lot of times, but if you really want to operate at scale, you've got to build this testing strategy directly into the very fabric of your architecture and your products. Uh, we talked a bit about how these automation tools using Scepter and CBCs work. Uh, they let you very quickly and easily deploy new infrastructure units. So you can see how we could take a production municipality and we could copy it into a test environment with very little effort, really just the push of a commit. Once that's done, you've got an exact copy of your production, uh, your production hardware just in a test environment. Then Eddie was just talking about these migration tools that we built. You pair them with this strategy and you can take your actual production users and clone their workloads into your test municipality. So now you've got a copy of your production hardware and a copy of your production users, and you can start to do some really interesting things. We did this, and then we started doing our load and our failure testing, and we could see how this actually impacted real customers. You know, we could, see, we could load their sites up and see what was happening as we were doing these things. You can even take all this one step further. We built a traffic replay and amplification system that watches our production request streams and then replays those requests against a target municipality. So again, you've got this clone of your production cluster, you've got the clone of your production users, and now you're actually cloning that production traffic over, and you can do things into that new environment. You can change the architecture, you can take things down, load test, failure test, and, and really see how this is gonna impact things. Again, this is not synthetic testing, right? This is the real deal. Oh, operations is all about getting it done. Uh, there are many paths to doing DevOps, and a product like this one, you might staff a large team and scale that team linearly as you get more and more customers onto the product. Unfortunately, that linear scale, it's, it's, it's not gonna be cost effective as you reach your millions and millions of users. Instead, the idea is to build automation tools, to build the robots, to program those robots, and then hope they don't come alive and, and take over all of humanity. There was originally supposed to be a Terminator on this slide, and so that joke goes alongside that, but without the Terminator, it's not funny. So, Eddie, just go on to the next thing. Here we go. So now we know how we're going to manage this really big collection of municipalities. But how do we make the most use of every Kubernetes worker node we've got? Let's set up the problem. In your typical hosting environment, you have several large servers 
that each hosts, say, hundreds or thousands of users' websites. Because most of those websites don't consume disk space, say, up to the user's service quota, you can oversubscribe that disk, which is to say, suppose you have 1,000 users who have a quota of 100 gigs each. You could safely store those users, in the typical case, on a 5 terabyte disk array. Why is that? It's because their average usage almost never really goes over that, that watermark. And if somebody's usage does, and the disk becomes close to real, actually 100% subscribed, those migration tools then allow us to take a user off of a heavily subscribed server and put them onto a less subscribed server. And this is why those kinds of migration tools are very common in these kinds of oversubscribed environments. In this way, you achieve very high operational efficiency. You get high site density, sites per node. And because of this, even if you have fairly expensive, maxed out server nodes, you can reduce your cost per site to a very low value. This makes it less expensive for your customers while they still get a premium product. It's both practical from an engineering point of view because your usage is now going to be relatively homogenous across your fleet and good for your customers because their price is going to get driven down. But Kubernetes does not, by default, support this model. From the scheduler's perspective, a running pod consumes its share of resources the moment it comes into existence, regardless of how many requests it's actually taking. In other words, if you were to look at your Prometheus metrics, what you'd see is that Prometheus thought, the scheduler thought the cluster was full at around 40,000 pods, but if you looked at your, your servers, you'd see they were actually running pretty cold with very low CPU and RAM consumed. In a hosting scenario, a maxed out Kubernetes cluster will not actually be, be operating at full capacity. We can do better. We can amortize the cost of this big cluster more efficiently. A natural thought on how to do this would begin, let's come up with a way to automatically take unused pods, whatever that might mean, and set their deployment count all the way to zero. This will cause the resources to be freed. Let us deploy more pods that are actually active into the cluster. If you have a situation, say, where 50% of a worker node's pods are inactive in this way, you could theoretically then choose some bound somewhere between that 50% level and 50% more than that, where you could oversubscribe those pods onto that server. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah, well, not exactly. The problem is once you remove the pod from the cluster, its endpoint goes away. And once that endpoint's gone, any traffic inbound to that service is going to end at a dead end. So intuitively, what you want to do is somehow retain that endpoint, and when a request comes in, quickly wake up the pod that's supposed to service that request and reattach the request to it. Under the covers, you want that request to tickle the activity metric that causes scaling changes to happen. In this case, because it's a new request to a sleeping pod, you'd want to go from a, a replica count of zero to a replica count of one. Once that pod is alive and routable, that connection that you're holding open could then be forwarded off to that new pod. And ideally, you'd do this so cleanly that even the first request to a sleeping pod wouldn't see a 503 or other connection error. Instead, the traffic would be successfully fielded by the pod, and the user would see the site that she requested. Finally, you need that behavior, that handoff, to be fast. Right? You want the person who's accessing the site, even for the first time, to see no appreciable lag. This would be your biggest success metric. 
So we weren't the first people to consider this idea, which we thought was really cool and made us feel confident that we were onto something here and we weren't just imagining an opportunity in this space. About a year ago, we stumbled on a seminal project in OpenShift that had a piece of this puzzle already built. It was an idler controller that could idle resources, setting their replica count to zero in response to attribute changes on a custom idler resource. We were very excited. Some of the heavy lifting had already been implemented and it had been done so as open source. What we needed to do to complete this puzzle was, was deal with the network-based idling. We had to ensure that that story for Sominus had a couple of, had three key life cycle phases. Right, so during the first phase of the life cycle, the Somnus sidecar and Somnus Omni, uh, Envoy proxy injected into a deployment would surface a network connections metric and watch for that metric to go below a threshold. When it does, the sidecar would regard the parent pod as sleeping or idled and set an attribute of a related Somnus idler resource to want idle equals true. This is the signal to the system that the resource is ready to be slept. In the second phase, the OpenShift idler controller notices an idler resource with the want idle flag set to true and looks to reconcile this with the state of the rest of the deployment. It does so by recording the deployment's replica count into the idler resource and then setting the deployment replica count on that deployment to zero, causing the Kubernetes scheduler to reap the resources associated with that deployment. Then the Somnus agent marks the endpoints resource for that deployment as idled so that the Somnus proxy, a replacement for kube proxy, can start listening for incoming connections in user space. Finally, in the third phase, a new connection comes in. For a slept resource, it lands now in the Somnus proxy rather than in the kernel routing. Here, the connection's held open. An event is raised signifying the need for, trap for a new pod. That event's handled by the Somnus agent, which sets watt idle back to false on the appropriate Somnus idler resource. This causes the OpenShift controller now to work in reverse, taking action by noting the old replica count from the idler resource and setting that replica count on the deployment. Kubernetes scheduler notices this, comes online, and starts loading pods. At the same time, Somnus proxy has held open those connections, delivers them to the pods, and then returns control of future uh, routing back to the kernel. Cool, awesome, that's great background, but a picture is worth a thousand words. So let's go ahead and look at some diagrams and we'll walk through this whole process and I think it'll set in for you guys. So we're gonna start with a basic vanilla Kubernetes installation. Here you can see two views in this picture. We have a namespace view on, on the that side. I was gonna say the left, but I don't know, it's backwards. Um, and then uh, on the right side, you can see uh, a node view. In the namespace view, we're gonna see the creation of resources. They're gonna be created and destroyed. And in the node view, we're gonna see the actual path of traffic as it comes into a node and is routed into the resources that are, that are supposed to answer those requests. Here you've got a clean namespace, there's nothing installed, and we haven't put any special components into our cluster. So next we deploy a standard vanilla workload into the cluster. It's just a deployment with a replica count of one and a service that fronts that deployment. You can see the state of the deployment in the namespace view. 
And in the node view, you can see that traffic bound for the target is connected to it via the kernel's routing table. Coop proxies hanging out, not really doing much as routing decisions right now are left to the kernel. This is a pretty standard view of a Kubernetes deployment. So we can manually scale that deployment down to zero by using kubectl, and we'll see the view that looks something like this. We can see the pods have been reaped, but your deployment and your service are still healthy and functional in the cluster. Unfortunately, any traffic bound for this service is gonna hit a dead end at the kernel routing stage. There's nowhere for that traffic to go, and this is gonna be a really bad experience for your users. Obviously, we can then scale back up from zero, in this case, to a replica count of two. Uh, we can see the pods are created, they return to existence, and again, the kernel routing mechanism is in place, and all that traffic lands in the pods where it's supposed to go. As we've said, all of that so far is just standard Kubernetes, but we wanna add something to that. Our goal, in short, is to automate everything that you just saw based on network traffic to a service, and to facilitate holding an inbound connection while scaling up. This way a customer never sees a 503 or a hung connection that would otherwise have been a standard behavior. How do we do this? Beyond the OpenShift idler controller, we need four components. The Somnus idler, the Somnus sidecars, the Somnus agent, and the Somnus proxy. So let's jump back in the diagrams now with those added to the story to see what that looks like. Cool, so here's an updated view of our cluster. We've added this cluster view at the bottom just because we're gonna install some components cluster-wide. Let's start looking at the namespace view. You can see we've added the service, uh, the Somnus idler custom resource. And you can see that the uh, pods, they now have this glowing halo around them. That represents the addition of the Somnus sidecars. Those sidecars can be added by decorating your deployment with a simple annotation and then cycling the pods. When they come back up, the Somnus agent will inject those sidecars for you to facilitate network-based idle and unidle. In the cluster view on the bottom, you'll see two key cluster components, the OpenShift idler controller and the GoDaddy Somnus agent. And in the node view, you'll see that we've swapped out cube proxy for the Somnus proxy. Even though we've made these changes, you can see that network traffic is still flowing through the kernel's routing mechanism, for example, IP tables or IPVS, and on to the pods. With everything in place, we're ready for traffic to die off and for Somnus to take over. And there it is, it just happened. Traffic just died off. It dies off, you can see there's no more uh, arrows coming into the node view, and we're ready for Somnus to take over. So first the sidecars, one an envoy proxy surfacing a network metric, and the Somnus sidecar watching for that metric, notices that traffic's been idle for a threshold period of time. Then the Somnus sidecar reaches out and sets that want idle flag to true on the corresponding Somnus idler resource. Next, the OpenShift service idler controller notices the need to idle and gets to work. It records the previous scale of the deployment on the idler resource and then scales that replica count on the deployment down to zero. This kicks off a scale down event which is reconciled by the scheduler, the pods are reaped, and things look a lot like the vanilla cluster did when we used kubectl to set our replica count to zero. Meanwhile, the Somnus agent has been watching for these idle state transitions, and when it sees a resource go from active to inactive, it updates the endpoints resource that corresponds with the service, setting a, a flag on that resource to idled. 
After this, the Somnus proxy will notice the idled endpoints and open a user space proxy to listen for that traffic. You can see that with the green line that's now connecting the service into the Somnus proxy. All traffic bound for that service will end up in that Somnus proxy, and now we can do some really fun things. At this point, the service is sleeping, and any additional resources that were being used have been freed up for the cluster to make use of elsewhere. Now we're entering that third phase, the third phase of the life cycle. Traffic resumes to the service in question. This time, though, the traffic enters the node through the user space proxy in Somnus proxy, and the connection is held open. At the same time, a need pods event is raised. The Somnus agent handles this event and reaches out to the appropriate Somnus idler resource, sending WA idle flag back to false. The OpenShift controller notices this, starts working in reverse, reverse, and this time it restores the previous state using the data stored in the idler resource and sets the replica count on the deployment back to that value. Pods are scheduled, become available, and the Somnus agent also watches those state transitions, this time noticing that we're going from the idled state to the unidled state. Uh, when it sees this, it finds that endpoints resource and clears that idled flag. Uh, all new connections then flow through the kernel routing mechanism to the, to the pods, just like they would in a vanilla cluster. Any connections which the Somnus proxy has held open are delivered to those newly provisioned pods, and users never know that the service they were just calling was sound asleep but a moment ago. Finally, all open connections have been delivered to running pods, New connections flow directly to the pods, and the system is in a nominal state, ready to repeat the process when traffic falls off. We did it. <laughs> now we have a solution that will allow us to increase pod densities, bring down cost per site, and still maintain a high quality of service for our customers using the ingrained Kubernetes features to prevent noisy neighbors. So now that you know how all this oversubscription model works, I'm sure you're really eager to start packing your clusters to the brim. But you can't just keep adding instances of your application into a cluster until it's completely maxed out with active pods. If you did, once any of those sleeping services were woken, you could trigger a rescheduling cascade or simply fail to handle the request at all. So how do you figure out how many extra instances you can put into your cluster? Well, one size doesn't really fit all here. Every application is quite different in its resource profile and its activity patterns. So rather than trying to reason about this a priori, you're gonna have to look at your application and understand what its, what its functional profile actually looks like. What a concept. Yeah, it's really not novel. Uh, know your users, know how they work. So let's take a look at some of the discoveries we made when we examined our application. When we were thinking about how we wanted to scale up our Kubernetes clusters with Somnus for our managed WordPress product, we naturally did some analysis of traffic patterns that we saw on our version one of the product, which is, has millions of users on it across the world. We noticed immediately that over 50% of the sites were not accessed even every day. What's more, when looking at smaller windows of time, we could see that in an eight hour period, as many as 90% of sites might not be active in that time frame. And this is really good data for us to work from. 
So an aggressive stance would be to say, let's snooze 90% of our, of our workloads, right? Let's, let's go ahead and set an eight-hour idle window, and if you're not active in that window, your pod's going to go to sleep. This would mean that on any given worker node, you'd see an average resource utilization of only about 10%. This speaks directly to our oversubscription model. But if it takes, say, 60 seconds for your pods to come back online, maybe spinning down resources so aggressively is, is not the right choice. If you did, a huge percentage of your everyday customers would see really, really horrible lag. So on the flip side, if your startup times are really small, like uh, 100 milliseconds, then maybe you could be even more aggressive because your customers for your application wouldn't even notice the time to start those pods. You can see that the first factor Im impacting your, your density calculations is how long it takes for your deployments to spin back up from a replica count of zero. However, the other limiting factor, that of not wanting to have too many pods on a worker, even if they're sleeping, indicates to us that we must set some kind of a high watermark for oversubscription. Suppose, for example, you have an API that's implemented as a deployment with a single pod. In the typical case, maybe you could put 100 such pods on a worker. When you have Somnus running, many of these deployments will be idle and the pods will be reaped. So let's say, for example, in your hypothetical empirical situation, you've got 30 sleeping pods. That means you could, say, plan to have 120 total deployments of your application on that node, knowing that because the idle count was 30 and would be reaped, you would still be under the total threshold for that server. Empirically, then, you just observe that over time. Maybe in the hypothetical case, you notice that with that oversubscription level, your server is still only at about 60% utilization. That might be a hint that you can bump up the oversubscription to 130%. Put 30 extra deployments on there. Observe that. Find where your threshold for how high you want that subscription level and that activity level on your server to be safely, and you'll empirically over time be able to adjust this. This will result in the aggregate in a very homogeneous level of workload across all of your worker nodes at a higher subscription level than you would have been able to achieve before. And this returns us to the big picture. We want to give our customers the best experience at the lowest cost. To do this at scale, we begin by partnering with AWS and offload undifferentiated heavy lift to our trusted infrastructure partner. Next, we develop core best practices in CI/CD and automation to manage that complexity at scale, knowing that it's going to grow out to hundreds and hundreds of clusters. Finally, we introduce Somnus, a service idler, to make the most of every individual resource that we've got, get our product WordPress optimized so that the cost for each individual site then is reduced to the lowest it can be for us and for our engineers, produces a homogenous workload across our cluster that we can predict and understand. Thank you guys for coming. Thanks to the team and thanks to GoDaddy and everybody that made this possible. Do come chat with us if you'd like to know more. We're going to take some questions, I think, and watch our space at github.com slash GoDaddy. I got it right today. And, uh, and if you run into me this week and you can say my name properly, I might give you a sticker, but I left them in my hotel room, so maybe not. Thanks, thanks. Any questions? <laughs> oh, yeah.